Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to our third of four parts of CT evaluation of the GI bleeding. Let's get started. Now, when we speak about protocols for GI bleeding, it's the last thing I mentioned in part two. Key thing is water as an oral contrast agent. If you can't, do not, whatever you do, do not give positive contrast. That makes the study uninterpretable. You need IV contrast. Yes, I showed you examples where you can see high density blood in the stomach or bowel, but that doesn't mean there's actually a bleed present. So you need IV contrast. I like dual phase imaging. I don't do non-contrast because if you have a bleed, it'll change appearance between arterial and venous. And sometimes you really don't appreciate the bleed in the arterial phase and you see it well in the venous. So two phases enough. And again, the importance of using multiplanar, particularly coronal, but also sagittal to look at the origin of the celiac and the SMA. And then 3D rendering can also prove very valuable. I want thin section CT, 0.75 millimeters, reconstructed every five millimeters is how I would like things. And again, the typically besides no need for non-contrast, there really is no role for delayed phase imaging. In this article by Lang, this is an article from 15 years ago. This is when some of the ideas about CT angiography really took off. High attenuation material detected within the bowel lumen at CTA that was not present on non-contrast performed immediately prior to CTA is diagnostic for acute GI bleeding. And that indeed is the case, but as I told you, I only want to do two phases and arterial and venous works better for me. Most of us have stopped doing the non-contrast for a long time. Again, the reason for the non-contrast was to make certain you're not overcalling some foreign matter as a bleed, but again, every bleed I've ever seen will change density and appearance between arterial and venous phase imaging. In the ACR appropriateness criteria, the most recent update, acute GI bleeding remains an important cause of morbidity and mortality. Over 750,000 patients each year visit the ER in the U.S., with GI bleeding. The source of GI bleed in more than half of these is in the lower GI tract. Despite advances in management, mortality rate for GI bleed remains at 10%, but increases to 40% in cases of massive bleed associated with hemodynamic instability or the requirement for greater than uh, four units of blood. Again, uh, when you look at this criteria, it does make the point that CTA is the study to do. If patients do stop bleeding, which is very common, maybe 75% of the time, then the patients can simply be watched and no intervention would be necessary. In the criteria, here's one of the criteria, lower GI bleeding, active bleeding in a hemodynamically unstable patient or a patient who has required more than five units of blood. When you can see CTA, usually appropriate, transcatheter, usually appropriate. But again, as I mentioned, in our scenario, the CTA always comes first, and only in the face of a positive CTA will the patient go to classic angiography. Variant two, CTA of the abdomen and pelvis without and with IV contrast is usually appropriate as the next step for patients with active GI bleeding. One of the things this variant talks about is that colonoscopy can be appropriate occasionally, 
but most people will not go to colonoscopy. And as I mentioned earlier, many people now feel that what you should do is go from uh, CTA to colonoscopy. That will make the colonoscopy more variable, more valuable as well. Variant number one, lower GI tract bleeding, active bleeding observed clinically. What's the next step? Again, CTA, diagnostic colonoscopy, uh, nuke studies are all usually appropriate. But again, usually appropriate, what does that mean? Well, it means that do a CTA. The most common CT pitfall that mimics active extrav in the presence of hyperattenuating matter within bowel loops most frequently hyperattenuating colonic fecal material retained or inadvertently administered positive oral contrast or prior pill ingestion. And all of that is true, but again, dual phase imaging gets around all of the problem. And here's just a simple example. There's something high density in bowel. Yes, you could think about this representing blood, and it could be, but if you look at arterial and venous phase imaging, it remains identical, does not change attenuation, does not change shape, and that's going to be foreign matter. And again, here it is in the coronal. You could imagine why you could surely think of it as possibly a bleed. But again, never changes shape. There's also a similar looking finding in the patient's cecum. Uh, this rounded thing is typically associated with ingestion whether it's pills, be it vitamins, or otherwise, it's always going to be foreign matter. Another patient, when you look quickly at the cecum, you say, wow, there's a bleed in the cecum. Here it is again. You look at the coronal views and you say, wow, there's active bleeding, which looks pretty extensive in the region of the patient's cecum. But then, as you go from there and you keep looking at the additional images, you realize that as you go from arterial to venous phase imaging, nothing changes. In this article by Kim, um, there was a question as to what the best phase would be for picking up bleeding. Uh, in this article, at least, the diagnostic performance was not different amongst the arterial portal and the combined set for detecting and localizing bleed. I think that's really the case, though while I, I will admit in terms of clinical practice, once sometimes you see the bleed on venous phase, then you go back and you say, oh, there it is, arterial phase. So doing them together gives you the highest accuracy. And in this article, about 84% was indeed the accuracy. Now, several other facts about lower GI bleeding. About a quarter of cases of gastrointestinal hemorrhage, spectrum from chronic and intermittent blood loss to severe acute hemorrhage, Again, the mortality and morbidity will depend on how early you make the diagnosis and how extensive the bleed is. Now, some of the findings and some of the possibilities. One is small bowel angiodysplasia. It's actually the most common cause of small bowel bleeding. It's often associated with end-stage renal disease and aortic stenosis. It's more common in the proximal small bowel, but can occur throughout the small bowel. What you have are tough-like hypervascular enhancing foci, under five millimeters in size, which fade on delayed phase imaging. Most commonly, it's multi multifocal. And typically, when you get down to the path, it's composed of abnormally dilated thin-walled vessels with a high propensity for bleeding. When you look at the differential of small bowel bleed, there it is sitting right in the middle. But it is the most common. So again, ulcers, Crohn's, 
non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug enteropathy, varices, tumors, or meckles are all small bowel possibilities. Now, one of the things about angiodysplasia, it can easily be overlooked. Look at the patient's proximal bowel. There's some high density present. On the axials, you see it, but perhaps you're not that impressed. When you look at the coronal, you can see, as I mentioned, there's multiple high-density zones, which is common with angiodysplasia. Again, you should be able to see that, but if I go to MIP, look how much more obvious it is. So angiodysplasia will show better thin slab MIP, 10 to 15 millimeters thick. You see the multiple tufts, the multiple zones of high-density, often with prominent feeding vessels leading into them. That's classic small bowel dysplasia. Again, it's impressive even when I get the same loop of bowel. Look how impressive it is on the MIP imaging and how much less impressive, though it is positive on the routine coronals. Again, detecting bleed is so much defined by how well you do the study. Another patient, patients with polymyositis and interstitial lung disease, Look at the bleed in the small bowel. It's a small bowel ulcer. Again, you can see the high density here. This is arterial phase. You see mildly dilated bowel proximal to it. And as you go from arterial to venous, look how much more extensive the bleed is. You can see the layering. Just a very nice example. And here it is on the coronal view. So the coronal MIP, the coronal volume rendering, nicely show you the localization of the bleed and its extent. Here it is again. Another patient, Crohn's disease, patients on anticoagulants for atrial fib. You look quickly, do you see a bleed? Well, what's this over here? Again, you can be fooled at times by high density in the bowel, but there's the arterial phase, you're suspicious. The MIP imaging, again, accentuates that abnormality. Again, do that sliding MIP. Here it is again. Now you go to venous phase and you see how the blood layering increases. There's the increase in the bleed. As you go from arterial to venous, there's increased blood present. The blood measures about 260. The density of true blood changes between arterial and venous. Sometimes it decreases, most commonly it decreases. Sometimes it does increase in terms of number. But again, one helpful rule, it always changes. When you're dealing with high-density material that's foreign matter, not blood, it always stays the same. And again, here you can see on the MIP imaging that almost looks like a rectangle of blood very nicely layering out, and the increase between arterial and venous face imaging. There's no way you're going to miss that bleed, right? It's really easy to see that bleed present. And here it is with the cinematic rendering as well. Now, small bowel neoplasms can present with bleeding, and we're seeing them more commonly, and especially true with GIST tumors. Clinical presentation of small bowel tumors, we know from my other talks, it's very variable. It's really a challenge, and there's often a 6 to 18 month delay from time of presentation to time of diagnosis, and that's very, very important. It's important because often the patient will be resectable at time of presentation, and at time of diagnosis will be unresectable. Small bowel cancer is relatively rare. It's less than 5% of GI malignancies, but it's increasing in, frequently, in frequency. Again, age range 55 to 64, which is the same age as most tumors. 
survival is really tied to early diagnosis. Now, GIST tumors are one of the ones I see commonly bleeding. Most GISTs occur in the stomach, but about 30% occur in the small bowel. Most commonly jejunum and ileum, though I have shown you a number of cases of small and large GIST tumors in the duodenum. Our experience is the smaller tumors are the ones that are very hypervascular, more likely to bleed, and look almost like carcinoid tumors. The larger ones are less vascular, and less vascular present with bleeding. So in terms of presentation, bowel obstruction, GI bleeding, and intraperitoneal bleeding secondary to rupture, though that is, in our experience, pretty, pretty uncommon. This article by Scola, talking about cyst tumors, talking about the variable appearance, clinical presentations include asymptomatic patients, nonspecific symptoms, obstruction and bleeding, where bleeding can take the form of a slow intraluminal GI bleed or massive intraperitoneal bleed. So again, a wide range of bleeding. Occasionally, patients may present with GI bleeding. Again, occult versus frank hemorrhage. So we always need to look at the bowel carefully for those possibilities. Here's a patient with GI bleeding, proximal jejunum, there's a vascular lesion. You see some feeding vessels, a beautiful example of a gist tumor. I would have considered carcinoid as well. Uh, GIST tumors often present as exophytic. Remember, they grow outside, like in the stomach. Um, an adenocarcinoma lymphoma, this is just too vascular. I also, in the right setting, would have considered metastasis. Think metastatic renal cell or melanoma, but there it is nicely shown. Classic GI bleeding from a vascular small bowel tumor. This tumor will be resected. Another patient, you can see in the third portion of duodenum, this high-density area, there's bleeding, and when you look carefully, there's an underlying mass present. Again, very similar to the last case, though some of this lesion is exophytic, and that was a gist tumor in the third portion of the duodenum. Or in this case, proximal jejunum looks just like the other cases, but again, hypervascular, but you see it's kind of exophytic in part, that tells me gist rather than carcinoid. Again, depending on what projection you use, you can make it look intraluminal, as on the coronals. But again, a beautiful example of a vascular small bowel tumor which bled, which was a gist tumor. You could again see it on venous phase imaging, but you could see it begins to wash out. This patient I showed you before when I was talking about capsule endoscopy, large tumor around 5 cm, very vascular, but it was mainly exophytic, so the capsule study was negative, and this patient had GI bleeding from a large lyomyoma, just beautifully shown also on the patient's coronal views. A very, very nice example right there. And again, showing it to you with a cinematic rendering. Here's the mass. Again, trying to figure out, can we distinguish various tumors with cinematic rendering? I mentioned to you about METS to small bowel. Here's a nice example, metastatic renal cell vascular lesion. Now, clear cell typically gives METS to muscle, to bone, to pancreas, to liver, to stomach and small bowel that are very vascular, okay? When you see a MET, you better look carefully because there are often multiple METS present. Here you can see one dominant lesion. Also, if you see small bowel mets, you better make certain you're not missing metastasis to other organs. Again, there's the feeding vessel. 
very nicely shown right there. You can see the washout and you can see why arterial phase is so important. Here's the lesion again. Yes, you can see it, but boy, you have to admit on the busy day, you might not see it. There's no bowel obstruction. It kind of looks like some foreign matter in bowel. You got to be careful. Another example, left nephrectomy. Here's non-contrast. Is this unopacified bowel? Well, when you give IV contrast, you can see it's a large mass. It's hypervascular. This was metastatic renal cell carcinoma to the proximal jejunum just past the ligament of trites. A very nice ulcerating lesion. You can see the site of bleeding very nicely shown. You can see the mass again on the venous phase imaging as you have washout very nicely defined. So again, when you're evaluating patients for tumor, always look at the small bowel. Common things are common. Again, think renal cell, think melanoma, but other tumors, including hepatoma, can do it as well. Another example, GI bleed. Do you see the lesion? Well, look at the third and fourth portion of the duodenum. Is there some prominent vascularity going on here? Is this loop thickened? But look at the duodenum. Well, when we look at it a little bit more carefully in the coronal view, you can see there's a mass there's a stent, there's a mass present. You don't see very bright structures, but then as you go, you can see the tumor present. Again, what are you thinking about? It's near the ampulla. You can have an ampullary tumor, you can have a primary adenocarcinoma, you can have a villus adenoma, you can have a lyomyoma, a typical carcinoid. But again, you see it better as you go to the venous phase. You can see the lesion, the lobular nature of the lesion. And at the end of the day, this was resected and was a lymphangioma. So not every tumor that bleeds is malignant. This is a very unusual tumor. That was not my first choice, but it's something to think about. Another patient, abdominal pain with GI bleeding. What's going on right there? Now, early phase, not very bright. But when you look at the coronal 3D, there's the mass right there. There's a tumor. There, it increases enhancement on venous phase. That's a schwannoma. So, again, I'm showing you two unusual cases, lymphangioma and schwannoma, both presented with GI bleeding, simply to make the point that you need to have a differential diagnosis. When you think about tumors, these small tumors can easily have been just tumors. There's no doubt about it. But again, the most important thing for you is to find the lesion because the lesion will then be resected. We once wrote an article about schwannomas. They're benign tumors, but they can occur in the small bowel. And it is very challenging, as the article says at the bottom. Visceral locations, however, are rare, and preoperative diagnosis is challenging, as schwannomas are often confused with other neoplasms. Another example, and I just show this case, and then we'll take a break. Here you can see the patient was being evaluated for GI bleed. What's this high density? Well, that's a camera patient had capsular endoscopy, which was eventually negative. There's something coming off the bowel here. You see it here as well. It's kind of high density. This is always a tough diagnosis, though the coronal gives you a better feel because it's kind of coming off the small bowel, but it's just kind of sitting as a circular high density structure. When you do the volume rendering, you can accentuate it. Could this be a tumor, an exophytic gist? That's a possibility. But younger patient, great location, exophytic, 
for Meckel's diverticulum, and here's a Meckel scan. Meckel's diverticulum are usually in the Peds population, but can be seen in adults, particularly patients in their 20s, and can present with GI bleeding, they can present with bowel obstruction, they can be confused with appendicitis or IBD. But again, think of Meckel's when you're looking for GI bleed in a patient. Again, right lower quadrant. And technetium protectinitate scan, 90% detection rate in children, but lower in adults. Okay, so you need to be careful. If you're thinking Meckel's, just because the nuke scan is negative doesn't mean anything. False positive scans can occur with intersusception, Crohn's, AV malformations, even just tumors. And false negative when there's lack of adequate gastric mucosa in the Meckel's. Okay, very, very important. Okay, we've covered lots of small bowel bleeding. Now let's look at the GI bleeding in the colon. But before we do that, let's take a break, and we'll come back for what I think is going to be part four of a four-part series. See you in a few minutes. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.